What is grace? Grace is community. Grace is passion. Grace is for everyone. Last week we had our Founders Day celebration and it was wonderful and thank you to all those who helped to make that event such a, a wonderful blessing to our congregation. Uh, and we were looking at what it means for our church to have unity and community. We looked at the words of Jesus and how the very first step toward a group knit together is through prayer and the move of the Holy Spirit. That's good advice, really, in any situation. Have a problem with a friend, a family member, a co-worker. Bring it to God in prayer and seek the Holy Spirit at work in you. When we put God first and God's kingdom first, we are no longer fighting for what we want, but fighting for God's will in us and in this world. That's the start to real harmony in this world. But we can't just stop there. Just because we are seeking the will of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean the fight is over. There is still much left to discern in how to live a life of harmony. One of my favorite passages on this topic comes from the book of Ephesians. Joe is going to read it for us. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul, which was summed up once like this. Christians get along with each other. If we are going to find a way to move forward together as a church, we're going to find it here in Ephesians. Let's hear our reading for today. It comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 and 11 through 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort <clears throat> excuse me, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all, and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children, tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knitted together by every ligament with, with, with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. And from Psalm 133, verse 1, how very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray as we begin our reflection on God's word. Lord, make us an inclusive community passionately following Jesus Christ. Move our thinking toward you 
and our hearts toward your Holy Spirit. Disunity and disharmony are not your will for your people. Teach us today how to knit our hearts together to do your will. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. My wife, Emily, began another school year at the Grace Nursery School. Every year brings with it its own unique challenges. Uh, new students means new problems, and new problems means new solutions. Uh, this year had its own fun challenge with a student who, out of fear, outright refused to use the toilet. Uh, he went all of last year at school without ever going into the bathroom, and now at four and a half, he was committed to doing the same again this year. Uh, Emily, though, she's a great teacher and made a plan starting on day one. This student had to at least go into the bathroom, and from there she had the student give the toilet a name, and then she started using a funny voice pretending to be the toilet. Uh, I won't repeat what she said here, but let's just say she made some jokes that would definitely make preschoolers laugh about what toilets eat. And by day three, it's totally different. This student isn't afraid. He's asking to visit the toilet and is happily flushing without complaint. It's great progress over there in the nursery school. Now, that's not the only challenge of a new year, though. Emily also told me about another student of hers, the classroom environment with teachers and students and rules, lots and lots of rules, was new and very challenging for one particular boy. There was a moment where she could see the student restraining himself he wanted to play with one of the toys in Wesley Hall so much, and it took everything inside of him to hold himself back, to follow the rules, and do what his teacher said. Emily told me she wanted to remember that moment, how hard this student was trying, and how he was at his absolute limit when it came to restraint. And I know part of the reason she wants to remember that moment is it helps her to be more graceful with her students. She could see right then and there how their tiny little bodies can only do so much. They are good kids that want to follow the rules, even when sometimes their desire to play and have fun gets the best of them. But I think something else is happening too. Besides showing grace, I think that moment is a marker of where students are on day one. In three months and six months, and a year from now, they will have changed and grown in remarkable ways. Some may even be unrecognizable. They will have command over themselves and show restraint that may have seemed impossible just a few months before. Because that's what school does for someone, and that's what a great teacher can do for her students. But life isn't all preschool classroom etiquette. It isn't all easily solved with silly voices and timely jokes. For many of us, working through our problems and our differences with others can feel hard to do. Harmony, to find unity and community with others, might even seem impossible. Last week, we talked about seeking the Holy Spirit to get on the same page with others, but today we take things to the next level. How do we build each other up, even when some folks might be acting like those preschoolers at the very end of their limit of their abilities to behave? 
There's a story of a man who started working at a U.S. embassy. One of his co-workers, though, was convinced that he was a Russian spy. She would stare at him while they worked on their computers. She wouldn't let him touch the mail or go into certain areas in the building. When he got cupcakes from his mother on his birthday, she demanded that they x-ray the cupcakes. Once he was making copies of a visa applicant's ID, and she yelled, I knew it, and kept asking where he found the ID. In the end, he rolled with it and started greeting his suspicious coworker in Russian just for the laughs. Now, as funny as that situation may be, not everything can just be laughed off. Sometimes people are mean. Sometimes people destroy the things you love or cause such heartache, it's hard to even look them in the face. What do you do when you've asked for God's presence? You've invited the Holy Spirit into your life and into your situation, and yet things remain broken. What does God want from us then? Well, the Apostle Paul knows something of these kinds of hardships. Besides traveling the world to share the good news of God with everyone he could, Paul faced some incredible hardships. He lists them once as being imprisonment, whipping, beaten with rods, pelted with stones, shipwrecked multiple times, and lost at sea for a day and a night. He would often go hungry and have no clothing. What a list of hardship. And yet, Paul says, I have learned to be content with whatever I have and to give thanks in all circumstances. That might sound a little like denialism to us, just pretending like these problems don't exist and pretending like everything is good, but that's not it at all. Let's go deeper to see how Paul says we get past these hardships to really find unity with one another. Paul writes the letter to the Ephesians while he's in prison. So when he starts today's passage with, I, the prisoner of the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling, he is saying this with a bit of irony. He is literally imprisoned. But instead of dwelling on that negative, he is making the very best of it. He may not be free to travel wherever he wants, but he is imprisoned in the biggest city in the world. He's in Rome at the height of the Roman Empire, and he is maintaining his connections with the people across the city and in the world with letters. These letters are known as the prison epistles or the prison letters. It is often noted how Paul is optimistic, happy even throughout these letters, glorifying God in all the good that can happen, even through him, even in those trying circumstances. Paul reminds us at the start of Ephesians 4 how we ought to treat one another with humility, gentleness, patience, and united in the Spirit. But he goes beyond this. It's not just about being good to one another and finding the good to turn lemons into lemonade. He also sees how the things we experience cause us to grow to maturity. Our day-to-day struggles Trials and pains draw us closer to the kind of humans God wants us to be. That's why he says we must not be children tossed to and fro, but speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into Christ. He is laying out right here what the ultimate goal is for our faith. I grew up in the evangelical church, and for my whole childhood, I was taught that the main goal of my faith was to evangelize, to convince other people to become followers of Jesus Christ. 
Now, that's a good goal, but that just doesn't make sense as our number one goal. What good is getting everybody saved if we are all a bunch of weak, immature Christians that know nothing about what it actually means to follow Jesus Christ? In the end, that kind of Christian faith would be so sad and so removed from who Jesus is, it would cause people to be repulsed by Christianity. No, our goal is not first to evangelize. Our primary goal is to grow in faith so that we can become more like Jesus Christ. We call this discipleship. Be like Jesus. And the phrase that gets us moving in this direction is right there in front of us. Speak the truth in love. I love that phrase because it makes the goal clear. Speak the truth, but do it in a way that always has love at its center. Years ago, there was a survey done by group youth ministries asking thousands of teenagers what they thought about Jesus. Who was this guy? And their answers were pretty revealing. Over and over, the youth described Jesus as a nice guy. He was your buddy. He was your friend, and when things were tough, Jesus would be nice to you. Now, maybe some of that is true, but it glosses over a fundamental aspect of our faith. We don't follow Jesus because he's a nice guy. Who wants a nice guy when people are stealing from you or lying to your face? We want someone to change the situation. We want someone who can make things right. Jesus doesn't just represent kindness. He represents the power of God that can move mountains and rework the fabric of the universe. Jesus reorders the world around us to justice, righteousness, and truth. When Jesus spoke the truth in love, he spoke hard truths that convicted religious folks and revealed their need to do better. He raised the bar and wouldn't let people settle for a religion that just let you go through the motions. If people in church told you they loved you but did awful things behind your back, what less loving thing could they do? That would sour people on God, and what is worse than that? To really unite together and start moving forward as the community of God, God, that God calls us to be, it begins with the Holy Spirit. But it is advanced when we genuinely love God and our neighbor. I think too often we get stuck on this notion of Jesus being nice, and so we think the right way to treat others is always with deference, always being syrupy, sweet, nice, no matter what other things might happen, no matter what others might do. And then when things get too tough on us, to keep pretending like everything is fine, we blow up in anger or break down in depression, and we look up to God asking, why are you doing this to me? God didn't call you to be a nice person. God called you to follow him, no matter what, no matter the consequences. Often we unwittingly perpetuate the very problems we think we're trying to solve. That means when someone is angry at us, we try and justify ourselves. Maybe we have a need to be well thought of by others, or we may feel underappreciated 
So we go and get other people and convince them that we are right and the other person is wrong. We build a coalition to convince ourselves and others that I am right and they're doing it wrong. And, and all we've done is not convince the other person or restore our relationship with that person. We've simply attempted to justify ourselves. That's not righteousness. That's self-righteousness. That's not love. That's conceit. There's a book that just came out about World War II. It's called The Mosquito Bowl and follows the lives of football players who became Marines and fought at the Battle of Guadalcanal in the Pacific. The author says that back then the Army hated the Navy and the Navy hated the Army, but everybody hated the Marines and the Marines hated everybody back. And yet, somehow, these people who mostly just wanted to survive and get back home were able to find victory in battle after battle. And eventually they would go on to win the biggest war this world has ever seen. How much better could we Christians do if we stopped fighting with one another over our differences, real or perceived, and honored the roles we play in one another's lives? Paul says there are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. All of us have something of these gifts in us. All of us have the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. If we could see and honor those gifts in one another, we might be able to solve some of this brokenness we see in the church. I'm betting that kind of humility would help our families and our co-workers too. It won't always be easy, but when the church is united together in our faith that connects us with Jesus Christ, and we put our focus and emphasis on that first, there is no problem that we can't meet together. There is no issue too big for us to fix working together, speaking truth to difficult problems, but always with love in our hearts to draw one another to maturity in Christ. For those of us, those people out there in the world who aren't trying to follow Jesus, you know, the Holy Spirit is at work in them too. Maybe they can't see it, and maybe they don't realize it, but God is still at work. We call it prevenient grace. And we honor the work God is doing in all people so we can keep loving them, keep being real and honest and stay committed to a vision for a better tomorrow as we welcome God's Holy Spirit at work among us. Let's end here. This past week I had a chance to watch a new movie that came out called 13 Lives. It's the true story directed by Ron Howard of the 12 children and one man who went to a tourist attraction after soccer practice in Thailand. Uh, The place where they went was a series of caves they decided to explore for just an hour or two before heading over for a birthday party for one of their teammates. When they were in the cave, though, a torrential downpour caused flooding in the caves. The boys were trapped about two and a half miles into the cave. That might not sound very far to walk, but when you have no light, no food, no clean water, and nothing but hard rain for days flooding the tunnels to get out, it is awful. 
Rescuers knew within just a few hours that the boys were trapped inside, but the water was so murky that even when lights, with lights, they could not see where they were going underwater. Add to that a current pushing against you, and portions of the cave that were as narrow as 15 inches. And you have a rescue effort that not only seems difficult, but nearly impossible. I didn't know this, but their coach who had gone in with the team was a part-time clergyman. He had lived in a monastery for a decade, but left to take care of his aging grandmother. In the cave, he gave the boys all the food he had and refused to eat himself. Uh, he, He taught the boys breathing exercises to keep them calm. And as the rescue operation was underway to bring each child, one at a time, through the flooded tunnels in scuba gear, he was adamant that he would be the last one out of the cave. Perhaps the most touching part of the whole story is what happened outside of the cave. There were divers from Thailand, England, Belgium, France, and China. There was the army, the police, and ambulance corps. Up above the mountain, the rain that had caused the initial flooding continued Over a thousand people worked to block the water from entering the caves uh, down below the mountain. The water had to go somewhere, though, and farmers next to the mountain agreed to allow the water to be diverted to flood and destroy their crops at a chance to save these boys' lives. That is love for your neighbor. By the end, there were 150 divers, 2,000 soldiers, and more than 10,000 workers and volunteers making the effort happen. The options to save these boys were very limited, offering a hard truth that doing nothing meant certain death. These people from different countries with different ideas of how the rescue should go undertook a perilous dive and managed to save all 13 trapped people. Despite their differences, despite their motives and backgrounds, they came together to accomplish what many thought was impossible. If some cave divers can do the impossible rescuing children, imagine what we could do together working for the good of this community, bringing the good news of Christ to our neighbors. It wouldn't just be a little good for a few people. It would be a transformation like we've never seen before. It begins with us with a commitment to speak the truth in love, no matter the situation, no matter how hard it may be, because God has something bigger for us that happens when we choose to work together. Will you do that? Will you commit to the truth in love for the good of all, to see God's will accomplished? Great things will happen when we find a way to work together despite our differences. My prayer for our church is a unity that builds community and that we would see the harmony that flows from this commitment. Let's unite together to speak the truth in love. Amen? Amen. For everything happening at Grace, check out our website at gumc.org.